Welcome to the Shifting Our Schools podcast, where we believe learning never stops. We create innovative and flexible professional development opportunities that support the current research and thinking in education today. This week's podcast episode aspires to set you up to take another step forward on your personal learning journey. Now here's your host, Jeff Udick. Welcome back to another episode of Shifting Our Schools. Thank you for finding some time to listen as we focus on equity and inclusion in this episode. Before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to let you know that here on the podcast, we're going to be focusing on a month of coaching conversations in March. Our goal is to bring you resources, stories, and ideas for instructional coaches from instructional coaches around the world. If you are an instructional coach, or maybe you know a great one that you think should be on the podcast, please reach out to us at info at shiftingschools.com and let us know. We're excited to dedicate an entire month to instructional coaching. Now, for today's episode, we're wrapping up February, where our focus has been on taking care of ourselves and our colleagues. Episode 197 launched our free resource, The Power of Pulse Checks, where we discussed ways to check in with our colleagues and let them know we're really listening. In episode 198, we chatted with Dr. Sadie Hollins, who has started a digital magazine for educators to support us all through wellness and well-being. Today, with episode 199, we talk about supporting each other as well as our students through the lens of equity and inclusion. I chat with Christina, a career educator who, based on work she has done in her school with students, created the Coming Out Monologues podcast, a collection of LGBTQ plus themed stories about coming out, sexuality, gender, and the intersectionality of identities as told by members of the queer community in education. Christina discusses the power we have to connect to each other, to hear each other's stories, and to learn more about each other through her podcast. What an honor to be able to chat with Christina and learn more about how she is helping to support all of us in becoming better educators for ourselves, our colleagues, and our students. I hope you enjoy this conversation, and with that, on with the show. Welcome back to another episode of Shifting Our Schools. I'm so excited to be here with Christina, all the way from Berlin. I love technology when we can be literally half the way around the world and still have great conversations about technology. Christina, welcome to the show. Um, I'm excited to get into some of the projects that you're involved with, some of the stuff that you're doing uh, to support educators globally and uh, in your own school as well. And uh, so let's get started. Just talk a little bit about your journey in education and maybe the different roles you you've curr- you currently have uh, in your school. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm so glad to be here and I'm really humbled to be on your podcast. I've definitely listened in on a couple of episodes more recently as well. Um, So thank you so much. Uh, I'm Christina. I use she, her pronouns. And um, currently I work at the Berlin Brandenburg International School in Germany. Um, I guess I followed quite a traditional route into education. Um, You know, I was a student in high school And I remember specifically, I was in grade 10 um, and it was my PE teacher who kind of inspired me to pursue education and help and serve others. 
Um, so most of my journey into education has been about serving my community and, and the school community. And I have about 11 years of teaching experience with eight of those being in international education. So currently I am the head of the drama department at BBIS. I also teach English language and literature. And I just love how both of those subjects really um, allow for rich conversation and, and learning to take place in so many different ways. But particularly as I continue to learn more about being culturally responsive in the ways that I teach and I help serve those students in my classroom. Um, I'm also the staff supervisor for the Student Social Justice Committee That's and cool. the Gender and Sexuality Alliance. Um, oh, very cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I know this year you've uh, launched an amazing project and I'm so excited to dig into this. Uh, you launched a podcast called the Coming Out Monologues Podcast uh, that features some amazing uh, stories can you maybe tell listeners a little bit about like what inspired the podcast and, and kind of what's your hope with it? Yeah, so um, I'm a really big believer in the arts being used as a form of resistance and healing for members of the global majority and for marginalized folks, um, such as those who are part of the LGBTQ plus community. And when we started this podcast project, the initial idea actually came from Trisha Friedman, um, who I'm so grateful for because we chatted on her podcast, the Be A Better Ally podcast. Um, and it was about the coming out monologues, uh, the school production that I directed and produced a few years ago now. And she suggested that we create a podcast version for educators to contribute to. So oh, before cool. I continue, I just want to say thank you to Trisha um, because she has done such wonderful things and she's such a great person to collaborate with. Um, so thank you to her for embarking on this journey with me. Very cool. um, yeah, I'm very grateful for her. I have to say that initially what sparked the idea is I was just... I mean, this is pre-COVID times, um, but I was just, you know, at home reading a book, um, as you do nowadays anyway. Yeah. Um, I, was reading, <laughs> I was reading The Vagina Monologues by Eve Ensler, and um, I was like, wow, this would be really powerful if we did this with queer students and staff. Um, and so that kind of got me, like, digging into a little bit of research to see if it had already been done. And um, a few kind of universities had done it in the US and I was like, okay, let's do this at school. So um, yeah, I just kind of started on that journey and I asked for lots of contributors, mostly friends to begin with, just to see if there was interest. It was a bit of a passion project of mine to begin with. I love that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I love those side hustle things that you do right. and end up being like so provocative and, and, and great in your own work context. Mm. Um, but then like there was a lot of interest. So we kind of, uh, you know, I searched for students and staff at the school who maybe wanted to contribute their own stories and, and really it kind of like took off from there as a school production. So, um, then when we got to like the educator podcast version, I really wanted it to be a podcast about, um, coming out in terms of sexuality and gender identity, but also, looking at the intersections of multiple identities because that was something that it lacked the first mm -hmm. time around. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I've been questioned in the past more times than I can remember about how I'm excluding students and staff from spaces that are exclusively for queer folks or other marginalized folks. 
And to that, I say, I'm really not thinking about dominant identities when I create these opportunities and environments, because I do it for those who have been historically oppressed and marginalized for centuries. And so I'm doing it as a way to ensure that they are at the center of all of this, Mm. because we're living in a world where heteronormativity and whiteness are already centered in every space we navigate. So if I create one or two or three of those spaces that are exclusive to, let's say, queer folks, um, particularly staff and educators right now on this podcast, and people still don't get it, I'm okay with that because mm. I don't do it for them. Right. <laughs> but in terms of the podcast's values, um, I basically want folks who contribute to feel as though they've gone through this process of healing um, mm. while writing their story down and then by delivering it orally or performing it out loud um, because art is such a powerful tool and by using it as a form of resistance and healing, we're centering ourselves and our joy in these stories. And the fact that they're monologues in podcast form is just another powerful element because, you know, it's intentional. We really want these stories to be uninterrupted um, where the person who's contributing and sharing their story does it in the way that they want to. There's no one interrupting them and saying, actually, what about this perspective? Um, yeah. And ultimately, we just want educators to to share their stories and center themselves. Very cool. So the coming out mo- monologue podcast that you have right now, is is it just educators telling their story or do you have students also putting stories in this public public space? So right now it's just educators. Okay. Um, I mean, we haven't really thought about expanding it yet, but it's definitely something that I'm curious about. I think there's right. lots of kind of child safeguarding issues sure. to do with this with Fair students. Um, so we haven't really delved into that <laughs> territory yeah. yet, but I think there's a lot of power in that as well. Cause I think a lot of students in these international schools and schools in general can sometimes feel really alone, um, especially if they're in countries where perhaps the laws go against who they yeah. are. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so great. And what a great resource. Uh, for people to just better understand, you know, and, and I love the idea of the healing process. You know, there is something about, like you said, there's something about writing down your story. There is something about talking out your story. And then that final thing that this thing is going to be literally public on the internet, right? Like there's so much that you unpack in yourself when you go through a process of production that I think uh, and you said it's been healing. Can you talk about some of those stories or what people have told you or uh, about that process? Yeah, I mean, if I speak personally for myself to begin with, uh, definitely the whole process of writing down, because my story was a lot to do with, you know, a student back when I was very early in my career yeah. um, asking me if I was gay. Yeah. And I certainly did not take up the opportunity to be honest and be who I was or who I am because I was just so scared of the repercussions. So I think writing that down and there's a lot of theatricality that, you know, you can play around with your story and embellish a little bit. Um, but I think that's kind of the power in it as well, because, you know, you get to tell the story, how it yeah. happened for you and how you imagine it to be, and perhaps even embellish a little bit and, and say things that you wish you could have done um, because that's all part of the reflective process. Yeah. I love that. I so and, love that. Yeah. And lots of folks who've contributed already, you know, we've got Kathleen Nagley who spoke about the intersection of being Jewish as well and her heritage and how that kind of intersected with her coming out to her staff. Mm. Um, 
you know, we've had an anonymous person as well talk about their journey with their gender and and how that intersects with um, race. So there's lots and lots of um, power to it because I think when, yeah, like you said, when you write it down, when you speak it out loud, when people listen to it and you get, you have your identity affirmed, it really is powerful. I love that. I love that. Can you talk a little bit about how social networks, you know, for example, something like Twitter uh, is really intersecting with the new possibilities we have for storytelling and just learning together in some of these spaces? What are, what are you seeing in, in social media these days? Yeah, I mean, social media is evolving really, really quickly. And I have to say that I feel like such a dinosaur when it comes to, <laughs> to how students, especially, uh, mm. and young people using these tools because, you know, they've grown up with this all around them. And some of them are making money, they're entrepreneurs, they're yeah. influencers. And as much as people may disagree with the whole influencer as a job, I think that it's amazing that these young people are like using this platform. So I'm definitely not there yet. <laughs> But I definitely feel like in terms of social media, such as Twitter, it's so powerful for educators and and any business person or someone who's trying to create some sort of identity online to network is so powerful. You get to create the community that you want to create. You get to build the professional learning network that you want, and you can have folks that you have never met in real life be... I guess someone that you can count on, right? Mentors, um, through thick yeah. and thin, exactly. Um, mentors, coaches, uh, just any sort of collaboration. Like I've never met Trisha at all. I mean, yeah. apart from virtually. And yeah. you know, we started this project together. Um, so I think it's really powerful. And you know, the connections you make and the opportunities that open up are really, the, yeah, the possibilities are endless. Yeah. Yeah. And it's same like with me, you know, Trisha works with shifting, uh, shifting schools and like we met, I can't even remember like 2014, one time, you know, at a learning two conference. And we've been working together now for like three plus years. And, and because part of it, because of COVID, uh, but also because you can, you know, she's up in Canada, I'm here in Seattle and, uh, it's great. And there are, you know, there are times when we have meetings like this and uh, you feel real connections to people through their social media, through email, through there's all these different ways that you can truly connect with others where location is no longer a boundary. Right. And Absolutely. when we talk about marginalized students, uh, like, for example, let's just say a school has two or three LGBTQ plus students in it. How do you see? using networks, using things like the podcast to kind of help connect these kids who might be marginalized, like you were saying, in either a country that doesn't accept them or, or a society um, or just society at large. Um, you know, how do you see, do you see things happening out there or where do you see things happening for these kids and for, for educators too? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's something in the works that, um, a friend that I've kind of connected with through Twitter has like, um, we're sort of like collaborating on, I'll talk about that in a little bit, but I just think that, um, you know, students who have the opportunity to see online, I guess, YouTubers or, um, you know, other students in other schools, um, knowing that there are GSAs out there, just having 
that visibility online makes you feel a lot less alone. Um, and so I think those students who do feel alone in their local context mm. can go online and kind of get the support that they need um, and do it kind of anonymously, which is really important for some some kids who perhaps are still closeted or who um, are not accepted by their parents either. And, you know, sometimes school is a place where they can escape as well mm -hmm. the reality of what is um, not accepted at home. And so we become places where students can come to and then we can connect with people online, um, especially through the pandemic. I think it was really hard for kids, but knowing that they can go online and then talk to others and get the support they need is just really powerful. And, and I, so I think it's things like that that aren't going to go away, right? Like once we've unleashed that, that, you know, I can find support, I need support, I can find support out there. We're not going to put it back in the box. Like all of a sudden you, you find out that there's support for you and we start to create these networks and we can create ways to connect so that we all feel more, um, I don't know, I guess better. <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I don't know what the right word is, right? Just better. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so something that um, my friend Caitlin Cornwell and I are kind of collaborating on is this international pen pal type system oh, but cool. specifically for queer kids um where they can like connect online especially if they are in some of those locations where it's really hard and isolating um I so i guess stay tuned for that if anyone's listening and they want to hook their students up i love that i love that uh you are actively involved in a lot of professional learning uh and sustaining that is not easy these days Talk a little bit about some of the professional learning at, um, and the shifts that you're seeing and some of the shifts that you feel like need to happen uh, to continue our learning journey uh, as educators. What shifts are you, are you kind of seeing out there? Yeah, I think that I, I think I think that um, a lot of these traditional professional developments are slowly becoming or quickly becoming even um, quite outdated. I mean, we all value face-to-face -face connections and networking so much. And I think that that has become even more powerful now that we can't do that. Um, I think folks are really trying to like leap at the opportunity to become or go to face-to-face -face events and workshops now. Um, and because we've all connected online, I think that's also an, another element added there where you can say, oh, I finally get to meet you after like two years of connecting online. Yeah. Um, you're a real person. You have flesh. Like, it's so, it's so you're strange. not in a box. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can see your whole body, not just yeah, like right. your face. <laughs> um, but definitely because of the pandemic, I think that, you know, things continue to shift. Yeah. Um, and I think when I think back to professional development that I took part in, you know, in my physical location, right at my school, um, where you, there's just so many restrictions to that, you know, that you have to do things synchronously with everyone else. You have to do everything within working hours. The choice is very limited. You know, if the school wants to go in one direction or needs to focus on one area, then everyone is going to participate in that same PD. And while that's necessary, for so many issues that need addressing, such as, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice, or further training and certain curriculum changes. Um, I think the way professional development and professional learning has evolved over the course of the pandemic has provided a lot more flexibility and opportunities for choice. Mm. You know, for example, as a working mom, I can opt for professional development 
that take place when my kids are asleep or, you know, during the weekend. And oftentimes I can catch up on recordings, which, you know, very rarely happens in face-to-face opportunities. Um, So I don't get the full experience sometimes of those breakout rooms, which can sometimes be really daunting anyway. Um, But you still get the opportunity to learn with people from all around the world um, and so many folks, some of the benefits, you know, so many folks are offering offering free workshops and free professional development, which is really gracious of them, um, you know, giving up their time to do that. And then on top of that, the international networking that has just, you know, boomed, I think, in the last couple of years because of everyone being online. Not to say that that didn't happen pre-COVID, um, but I think it's definitely accelerated some of those networking and connections. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think we think, need that flexibility. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's something that, you know, I think coming out of this again, you know, once it's out of the, once it's out of the box, you can't, you can't put it back in. And once we realized that, you know, we can do professional development in different ways. Um, and even, I mean, there's just small little tweaks that, that I've already seen happening. You know, like they're like a couple of larger school districts that I work with, Teachers get frustrated now when they have to get in a car and drive 30 minutes through traffic to get to another school to have a hour meeting and then 30 minutes back home. Like, just like, let's just do it on Zoom. Right. So there's, there's ways that we can, we are even getting time back in some ways because you're not spending an hour on the road. I can just be in that meeting because I need to be in that meeting as a school district. Or like you're saying, at a, at a global level, like we can now learn from people outside of our current physical space. And I think something like, you know, LGBTQ plus clubs, GSA clubs, advisors, if you are an advisor at a school with a GSA group or an LGBTQ plus inclusive group at your school, find a way to network with others because you're probably the only person in that high school with those kids trying to support the trying to support those students. We need to get those connected as well. And that's one of the things I love about the stuff that you're producing is it's helping to create this collaboration where I might be the only GSA advisor in my high school or my middle school. How do I get support for myself in supporting these kids? And that is such a critical piece that when we start thinking differently about professional learning, we, we help those kids. We help ourselves and we help those kids, but you got to get out there. I think that's, that's the thing, right? You've either got to be on Twitter. You've got to find these networks. Um, you've got to know that there's this pen pal thing that you guys are creating where like, I've got four kids at my school and six kids at your school. And these kids need to talk to each other. They need to understand their experiences are, are the same and different depending on where they live and, and what's going on. And it's just, it's, it's, it's all there. We can do this. You know, we can support kids in so many different ways now that we could have before, but we didn't. Now we know how to, and we need to, right? Knowing how totally. and not using it is malpractice in my world, right? You know how to connect. You know how to make networks. It's malpractice if you're not doing that to support students. Let that yeah, sit for 100%. a second. Yeah, right? 100%. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love oh, that, right? Sorry, I get on. this is just like, you know, when we start talking about this stuff, it's there. It's there for us. Does it take time? Yes. Is it a struggle? Absolutely. Is it worth doing it for our students? 110%, you know? Yeah. And I think a lot of educators, you know, in my experience, they're afraid of things like Twitter because, yeah. you know, it is quite like... <laughs> 
a scary place to someone who's new to it because there is just so much and I think you have to follow the right people and you know I try to follow people with different perspectives too because I think it's important to kind of understand different perspectives while I may not agree with them I think it's important um but people are scared you know it is time consuming to try and build your network to begin with but once you have it it's so powerful and like you said the opportunities for our students to really connect and collaborate and then for educators to connect and collaborate is just, you know, how could you not say yes to that? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, you start small. I think that's, that's the thing, you know, you start by following you on Twitter, you start by following Trisha on Twitter. Even if you just follow those two people, they are going to introduce you to the next for people because they're going to be retweeting things that they're doing. They're going to be talking about other people. And now all of a sudden you've got six and then you've got 15. Like you don't have to go out and try to friend half the world, right? Start with people that you trust, people that you know, deliver good content are there to support you and you slowly grow your network. Somebody wrote a book about that back in 2010 that nobody ever bought, but you know, it's okay. (laughs) Um, Let's talk a little bit about just your, the, the way that you approach collaboration, you know, as a theater arts educator, I think you have a whole different level and insight into what makes healthy, compassionate, and creative collaboration. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that? What do you see and how do you bring that experience into these other places? Yeah, I mean, I've certainly learned the hard way when it comes to collaborating with others, especially as a drama teacher and as a director. Um, You know, most of the time it's because I just have to let go of needing to do it all. And I think anyone who is a bit of a perfectionist like me probably feels similarly when it comes to collaborating Um, because I want things done like my way. So I try to take on all the roles, uh, which obviously doesn't work. And that creeps in everywhere in my job, which is really ironic because I really actively try to help students be, you know, their own agents for change. Um, but I'm always humbled by my students and my colleagues. And it's so funny because as a, as a theatre teacher or a drama teacher, my students are always saying, you know, oh, not another group project. And I'm like, <laughs> this is what the theatre is. You That's have right. to collaborate. There's no way you can do it on your own. Um, so talk, to talk about a more concrete example, um, you know, directing a show requires collaboration and so much trust, care, and compassion for the people you work with. Mm. Um, You can never be as successful as you really want to be if you don't have those three things. You know, expertise and experience are really important, but they don't compare if you can't demonstrate, you know, enough dignity and respect for the people that you work with and the roles that they all play when it comes together. Um, So I'm going to talk a little bit about my school's production of the Coming Up Monologues just because, that is one experience that really <laughs> showed me how important it was to collaborate mm-hmm. and how successful it could be. Um, and it really, it came down to the whole process, you know, apart from having those initial conversations uh, with the contributors who wrote short scenes and monologues for the performance and for the show, I reached out to the entire school community and asked for volunteers to help with all different aspects. Cause I just knew I couldn't do it myself. Um, you know, we had staff members edit the full script once it was collated. We had students and staff help direct and provide feedback to the actors on stage. We had staff and students design and paint the backdrop. We had staff and students translate various vocabulary into multiple languages. We had students printing and hanging up things for the art exhibition that kind of went with the show. Um, we had students and staff, uh, 
give their input on the GSA display. We had parents and staff volunteer to provide and sell food and merchandise to raise funds for the GSA. We had students and staff on the music and tech. We had, you know, the whole night was a success because we had every one of those people kind of bring their full selves to the job. And, you know, we trusted one another and we didn't like yell at people or we Mm. didn't, you know, get angry or upset when things didn't work out. Um, You know, I had so many different roles being the director. And then also I was performing in the, in the show. So I had to just let go because I couldn't do it all that night. Um, You know, a friend of a friend even, you know, came from the U S to Berlin to watch a monologue being performed by their student. And there's no way that that would have happened if I was like trying to manage everything. Yeah. Um, and ultimately though, I think it was a really big success, not because of all the collaboration that kind of took place, but because I had the support of my school director, my principal, the staff, the parents, like all of those people came to watch the show and, you know, it doesn't happen all the time. So to have everyone come just really helped, I think people realize that they were important in their role. Mm, That's cool. And honestly, I have to say that when I reflect on the entire experience, I wasn't a new staff member. So I had a lot of the relationships developed already. So I knew folks, I don't think I could have come in and been a new staff member and, you know, had such a success. I think it's really important to say that as well as trusting other people, you have to really develop those relationships um, to begin with as well. I, I love that. And I love like, you know, the hardest thing to do in a, in a true collaboration is letting go, right. Letting go yeah. of some control, letting go of, <laughs> of everything and, and understanding that everybody's got a role to play and what's your role within that. Um, that's, it's, that's, that's the hardest part about collaboration, whether that collaboration be a PLC, a drama production, it, it doesn't matter. Right. It's this, this idea totally. of control that is so difficult. Um, and I, 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 I'm pretty sure as I get older, the older, older you get, the harder it is to let go of control. I'm finding that out personally <laughs> anyway for me uh, as we go. Uh, it's been just great chatting with you and thank you so much for, for all the resources and the Coming Out Monologue podcast. We'll make sure that that is linked in the show notes for people to easily be able to go over and, and listen to. Um, uh, for folks uh, who are listening, who maybe want to either, you know, listen to the podcast or have resources for professional learning, or maybe they want to share their story on the podcast. What's the best way for them to, to reach out to you? Yeah. So folks can connect to me on Twitter um, or LinkedIn. I'm more active on Twitter, I would say, but you know, I'll get back to anyone who kind of messages me on whatever they find me on. Um, And folks can also connect with Trisha on Twitter. She's definitely a lot She's very active on Twitter as well. She's very active on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, way more than me. Yeah, way more than um, me. <laughs> I don't know where she has the time. Yeah, me neither. Um, but also, you know, folks can visit the website, the coming out monologues podcast.com um, for more information. Awesome. Thanks so much. And we'll make sure all of those links, links to the Twitter, links to, to the podcast uh, and everything are in the show notes to make it very easy for everyone. You can just click uh, expand the show notes, click on the links and go have a listen. The podcasts are fantastic. Uh, and just eye-opening for all of us. You know, it's just so great when you get to hear these different perspectives uh, from educators around the world. So 
Christina, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking busy time and probably staying up late. I don't know what time it is in Berlin, but uh, <laughs> uh, appreciate getting across the time zones. The one thing we need to figure out about global collaboration is time zones. And that's the last big, I'm telling you, we just need to somehow get the sun to be at the same place all around the earth. We, we can figure this out. If we can, we can get people on Mars, we can figure out how to make time zones work too. So uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm sure. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jess. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Shifting Our Schools. If you found this episode helpful or inspiring, please make sure to subscribe and leave the team a five-star rating. If you want to learn more about the Shifting Schools team or download our free resources, head over to shiftingschools.com to see what's on offer now. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode to keep rethinking the shifts our schools need.